who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors to best-selling authors and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Mystery Theater presents... This is Christopher Lee the host of Mystery Theatre. The time has arrived for the tenth and final episode of City of the Dead on Adventures by Morse. Those who prefer their thrillers with a touch of the supernatural have waited patiently for this moment. Has the line between life and death been permanently breached? Do the dead really walk? The fog parts and all will be made clear if you listen very closely. But first, a famous guest host introduces the Lux Radio Theatre as Alan Ladd stars in an hour-long production from radio's most prestigious dramatic series. We'll join our stars live from Hollywood after this. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Alan Ladd stars now as a dedicated doctor whose medical studies are threatened by his infatuation with a beautiful Asian woman. Also heard are Anne Richards and Akim Tamirov with special guest host Brian Ahern. Here's the first half of Disputed Passage on the Lux Radio Theatre. Lux presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater brings you Disputed Passage, starring Alan Ladd, Akeem Tamirov, and Ann Richards. Ladies and gentlemen, your guest producer, Mr. Brian Ahern.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. One of the world's outstanding men of medicine, Sir William Osler, said at the peak of his career, nothing in life is more wonderful than faith. It is the one great moving force which we can neither weigh in the balance nor test in the crucible. Sir William was a man of fact and research, a tireless seeker after scientific truth. Yet he never ceased to admit the existence of forces greater than his scalpel could reveal. Tonight's Lux Radio Theatre play disputes this passage, or rather puts it to the test in one of the screen's most moving stories, from Lloyd Douglas' great book, Disputed Passage. It comes to us from Paramount Studios, producers of the current Technicolor hit, Bring on the Girls. Among our stars tonight is Alan Ladd, who recently finished the Paramount picture, Salty O'Rourke, in which he goes back to the type of role that made him famous, the gun-toting, swashbuckling man of action. Co-starred with Alan tonight is the versatile character actor, Akim Tamirov. Also a newcomer to this stage, but for many years Australia's top film favorite, Miss Anne Richards. Disputed Passage takes its title from lines by a favorite American poet, Walt Whitman, who argued that wisdom could best be acquired through challenge and dispute instead of blind agreement or acceptance. And I think that goes for little things as well as big. Certainly we would rather you put Lux Flakes to the test yourself than blindly accept whatever we may say about them. And I think it's because so many people have put Lux Flakes to the test that today they are serving in so many homes, lightening household chores and helping families to take better care of the things they wear so that they'll last longer and look better too. And now here's the first act of Disputed Passage, starring Alan Laird as John Bevan, Kim Tamiroff as Dr. Forster, and Anne Richards as Audrey. Some 15 years ago, at one of our larger medical colleges, a group of new young students, nervously excited, file into their first class in surgery. They know the significance of the moment. It marks more than the start of their careers. It is their introduction to the almost legendary figure who will rule their lives for the next four years. Their teacher, Dr. Max Forster. Well, what's the idea of keeping us waiting like this? Don't worry. You'll see so much of Forster, you'll hate the sight of him. Now, who says so? Every guy who's ever studied under him. He's a sarcastic, egotistical heel, and I'm ducking the eminent Dr. Forster every chance I get. He's still the greatest surgeon in the world. Oh, you'll find out, Bevan. You'll find out. Pipe down. Here he comes. Sit down. Sit down. This is a classroom, not a ballpark. Well, for reasons known only to yourselves, you're elected to study the science of medicine. All right? But get this through your heads. You are no different than any other class of beginners in any other medical school. Your own opinions to the contrary. At least 60% of you will prove so completely stupid that you will, you will have to leave for the protection of the general public. Only in 10% of you will there be a meager evidence of superiority. It is to that 10% I now speak. From this small group will come the pure scientist in whose life there's room for nothing but science. Someone, someday, will tell us what we want to know about cancer. Someone will give us the cure for infantile paralysis. If I may venture a prediction, the men who are to achieve these feats are already born. Perhaps they are experienced scientists on the eve of their discoveries. But it also may be that they are students in some medical school. These men may be here, in this room. All right now, as I call your names, you will rise. 
Ralph Anderson? Here, sir. Hmm. Well, well. Gentlemen, Mr. Anderson obviously will specialize in surgery. Thank you, sir. Yes. Since nature has seen fit to give him hands suitable only for stump pulling, he will no doubt pursue a career requiring to greatest delicacy and skill. You may sit down, Mr. Anderson. W. Bain? Yes, sir. Oh, lady. And so you have decided to overcome the handicap of your sex and go out to do a man's work. Very well. No doubt you see yourself as some ministering angel, restoring health to those fortunate enough to feel your cool hands upon their fevered brows. There's no reason why I can't be a good doctor just because I'm a woman. Well, you don't. Perhaps you suffer from faulty vision, Miss Blaine. Sit down. John Wesley Bevan. Stand up, John Wesley. Let the congregation see you. Yes, sir. The records indicate that you came from a righteous little college engaged in the manufacture of preachers. That's right, sir. Well, you will be interested to know we have a standing reward here for any dissection that proves the existence of a soul. How much is the prize, sir? <laughs> I shall be glad to sign the check, Brother Bevan, and let you fill in the figures. As a son of faith, you doubtless believe in the hereafter. Well, it's a theory, sir, that science hasn't yet disproved. Science concerns itself with facts, not metaphysics. And you will find no interest here in a churchman's views on anatomy or pathology. I can quite understand that, sir. Any more than a scientist's viewpoint would be of any interest on religion. I trust, Brother Bevan, you will not be long in learning that rhetoric belongs in a pulpit, not the laboratory. I had always supposed that, sir. Until now. <laughs> Quiet! If there's any more of this moronic laughter, I'll dismiss the class. All right, sit down. Alexander Claxon. Alexander Claxon! For Pete's sake, Johnny, get your nose out of that microscope. Oh. Hi, Andy. I've been looking all over for you. I told you I'd be in the lab. In case you haven't heard, Christmas vacation started today. Uh, yeah. And you said you'd come home with me? Andy, I... I just can't go. No, come on. I'll help you pack. I can't leave. I've been waiting five days to find out how a piece of live tissue reacts to this dose of x-ray. You have? Uh, I'll show you how live tissue reacts to roast turkey. <laughs> I'll take a rain check on that. What are you trying to do, please, Forster? You couldn't impress that egomaniac with a Nobel Prize. He's still the greatest surgeon in the world. How can you say that after the beating you've taken? He's been riding you all term. <laughs> Go on, you'll miss your train. Okay, Johnny, sorry. I hope you and Forster have a dandy time together. Where's Johnny? Inside the microscope. Oh, stick around. You might like to find out what happens when a person blows up spontaneously. Forster, huh? You too. Well, well. Oh, I'm so mad. Talk to the research man. So long. <laughs> What's the matter, not going home? Of course not. Dr. Forster doesn't believe in holidays. He just slapped four of my anatomy drawings back in my face. Well, what of it? If they're not right. Look, Bub, I'm 23 years old. Maybe not good-looking, but not too bad. And I haven't had a date or put on an evening dress or even danced in four months. Nothing that I could remotely enjoy. Now, well, why couldn't he wait till after the holidays for his stupid old drawings? Hey, hey, now, wait a second. You don't have to cry about it. Who's crying? Why, he couldn't make me cry if... <laughs> oh, it's no use. Got a spare shoulder I could borrow. Sure. Sure. 
Now, look, Winnie, it's just that... Well, well. Your unselfish devotion to scientific labors, both of you, is most commendable. May I suggest that a bench in the park might offer better facilities for your present type of research? Get out of here. Okay, I'll get out. You bet your boots I'll get out. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, you've got eyes, Brother Bevan. So far as I'm concerned, Lincoln just signed that proclamation. This slave's going out and celebrate her freedom. Come on, let you and I get stiff. Well, uh, Winnie, I... Oh, but I can't go. You don't want to go? You don't know how I want to go. But these experiments cost money. And in just about 42 minutes, something's going to happen in that test tube that I've been waiting a good many days to see. I get it. Or do I? Well, how about a date for next Christmas? <laughs> Swell. Oh, do you realize there are three more Christmases before we get out of this reform school? Yeah, that's the trouble. There's not enough time in four years. How can you learn what it's taken? You're talking like he talks. Like Foster. Am I? I didn't mean to. I'm just scared, Winnie. Scared that they'll hand me that diploma and I won't be ready to take it. It'll be here before we know it. Before we know it. Following midterm examinations, the second-year medical students listed below have been placed on the honor roll. Alberto Fioretti, chemistry. Watson Shelby, materia medica. John Wesley Bevan, surgery and medicine. Joseph Morgan. From Dr. Max Forster to all third-year medical students, from January 4th to 17th, all laboratory sessions will be in charge of John Wesley Bevan. Anyone failing to attend these sessions will be held accountable to the dean of the university. Well, how do you like that? Bevan! Well, why not? He's top man in the class. Forster had to choose him. Yeah, and Bevan's no different than Forster. He had a heart when he came here three years ago. It's gone now. All work and no feelings. Forster's made a convert, all right. The pure scientist. Commencement exercises, College of Surgery and Medicine, will be held June 3rd on Hadley Campus. Principal speaker, Dr. William Cunningham, Carlisle Hospital, Shanghai. Gabriel Award for Best Scholastic Record, John Wesley Bevan. Valedictorian, Thomas Layton. Yes, gentlemen. 35 years ago, when doctors received their diplomas, they didn't have to know so much. Still, the job we've done hasn't been too bad. I think that's been due to a power greater than our own. You'll learn something of that power sooner or later. It has nothing to do with science. It has everything to do with humanity. In your years here, you've worshipped at one shrine, science. And that is as it should be. Well, how do you feel, Dr. Anderson? Never felt better, Dr. Bevan. How do you feel? Fine, Doctor. Then pipe down. I want to hear Cunningham. <laughs> Why, he's not a doctor. He's a missionary. And a pretty dull one at that. But I charge you, you cannot cure the ills of a body and leave the soul in torment. And that's all that 35 years have taught me. And for what it's worth, I pass it on to you. Thank you, gentlemen, and good luck. Thank you, Dr. Cunningham. Now there remains the awarding of one special award, Dr. Max Foster. I am sure you will realize that the warm atmosphere of brotherly love engendered by Dr. Cunningham has nothing to do with the appointment I'm about to make. I'm asking John Wesley Bevan to hold forth in my laboratory for the coming year as my assistant. Do you accept, Dr. Bevan? Yes, sir. Like you, I recognize the ship is more important than the crew. Thank you, sir. Hey, Johnny. Hello, Andy. Well, leaving for home today? Yeah. What's your hurry? 
Oh, I got to see Foster. I've started already teaching summer classes. I wanted to talk to you about that, Johnny. Hmm? Those kids, they're squawking. They'll take it from Forster because he's Forster, but they won't take it from you. You're too rough on them. What do they want me to do? Hold their hands and tell them how wonderful they are? Nobody ever held mine. Look, Johnny, these kids are human beings. They've come here to study and... Now let them gonna... study and stop the grousing. There isn't time for both. Okay, I'll drop you alarm, Johnny. I'll... What's that? It's in Forster's office. Come on, Andy. Sounds to me like somebody's getting murdered. Well, how do you feel now? Oh. You okay? Yeah, I'm all right. Where's Anderson? Taking your sparring partner to his car. Mm. I must have hit Carpenter harder than I meant to. Mm. All right, what happened? You know him? Carpenter? Sure, you bounced him out of school last year, didn't you? Certainly, I threw him out. What good was he? A football player who broods a year about his feather and then comes back to beat me up. Didn't do a bad job, did he? I don't like your jokes, Bevan. Going to press charges? No. Maybe I should to protect society. But I kept Carpenter from being a doctor. That was one crime against society I was able to prevent. No, I, uh, I want this thing kept quiet, Bevan. Yes, it uh, might give other students some ideas. <clears throat> Nauseated? Yes, a little. Want to throw up or lie down? I'll just sit down. You know, you've had a good-looking come to you for a long time, if you don't mind my saying so. Then why did you stop Carpenter? So happens there are a lot of things you know that I don't. I got to get them out of you. That's the most cold-blooded remark I've ever heard. Knowing how you despise sentimentality, I'm flattered. Yes, yes, of course. Fortunately, I, I now have a use for you also. There's a case coming in here tomorrow. Some patient of Brother Cunningham's came from China with him. What sort of a case? A bullet wound in the right arm. Penetrated the medial aspect with seemingly no impairment of function. Understand? Medial nerve? Yes. A few months ago, a pain developed in the hand, not in the arm. An operation was performed, but no relief. What happened? Adhesions liberated without uniting the nerve? Yes, probably. Anyway, another operation is necessary. Sounds as if the nerve fibers have grown up producing an aroma. Good. Good. Very good, Bevan. You'll operate at 10 o'clock. Me? Why not? Afraid you cannot do it? No, I was only surprised you'd be willing to step aside. Well, my fingers, look, when I fell. Oh, I see. Why didn't you say something? Well, just a sprain, but I cannot operate. Here, I'll tape it up. <laughs> Better have an x-ray. No, no, I said it was just a sprain. And as for Cunningham's patient, Bevan, get it through that thick skull of yours that I'm interested in only one thing, good surgery. Who performs, it doesn't matter. Now tape up these fingers. The patient's inside, Dr. Bevan. Oh, thanks. Good morning. I just wanted to, uh... Oh. Good morning. Oh, I beg your pardon. I wasn't expecting to see, see a girl. Where is Dr. Foster? Dr. Cunningham told me he was to operate. Well, he hurt his fingers yesterday, and I'm afraid that he... Oh, I see. It is you who will operate? With your permission, of course. Dr. Forster didn't tell me that, I mean, that, well, a bullet wound, you know, You're I thought using that... the anesthetic, doctor. There's no need to talk your patient into unconsciousness. You are in good hands, Miss Hilton. I have explained to Dr. Cunningham about my, uh, my automobile accident. Oh, please. Please do not think me difficult. It is quite all right. Then we'll proceed. Nurse, call surgery. Dr. Bevan will operate at 10 o'clock. <laughs> Supper will be right in, Miss Hilton. Well, how's the arm? The hand, it is much better. The arm, it is still very painful, Doctor. Well, that's fine. I'm glad it pleases you. I myself am not delighted. 
Won't you sit down? Oh, thanks, but I'm afraid I haven't time to visit. But the pain. You have not told me why. Well, your arm hurts simply because of the operations. The hand is better because, because we removed the tumor from the nerve. Oh, I see. The bullet almost severed the nerve. You must have suffered terribly. These days, there are many Chinese who suffer. Chinese? I am Chinese. Did you not know? Oh, that's your name, Audrey Hilton. Your, your face. Are you joking? On the contrary, Doctor. It is inside that the person is what he is. I was born in China, educated in China, and I did not leave there until a few months ago. I am Chinese. But uh, your parents? American. They were killed when I was so young. My foster parents were Chinese. They are the only family I have ever known. I, uh, well, I hope I said nothing to offend you. Oh, please, do not think of that. I, uh, well, you're doing fine, Miss Hilton. Another week like the past one, and you'll be playing tennis. An American sport I have not yet acquired. But already I have succumbed to fishing. Dr. Cunningham taught me. Uh, well, have you know, I was once the best hook and worm fisherman in the whole state of Wisconsin. <laughs> How long has that been? Uh, years ago. You know, when you talk like that, you are a different person. For a little moment, you are not the stern Dr. Bevan. I think it will be a great relief to you when I can leave here. You regret even those few minutes that keep you from your work. This is my work, part of it. Besides, I, I enjoy talking with you. Excuse me, Dr. Bevan. Yes? Dr. Forster just called. There's an emergency at Centerville General Hospital. He wants to know if you can leave tonight. Uh, tonight? Oh, yes, yes. Tell him I'll go. I'll, I'll see him in a few minutes. Yes, Doctor. Centerville? That is not far from the Cunningham's place. You'll be staying with them when you leave here? Yes. I knew them many years in China. They are so kind to me. They have a wonderful place in the mountains. There is good fishing there, Doctor. Yes, I guess there is. Well, I'll see you when I get back from Centerville. Goodbye, Miss Hilton. Goodbye, Doctor. Centerville General Hospital. One moment, please. Dr. Spencer, hold the wire, please. Centerville General Hospital. Oh, Dr. Bevan. Yes? Dr. Forster's been calling you, sir. Shall I try to get him? Oh, please. Can I take it here in the lobby? Yes, doctor. Hello, Hello Bevan. I heard you were here. Dr. Cunningham. Leaving? Oh, just about emergency last night for Dr. Forster. Lucky I caught you. I can't tell you how grateful I am. That was a wonderful job you did on Audrey's arm. Oh, have you seen it? I was down there yesterday. I'm sorry, I missed you. I stopped by here to see if you couldn't come up to the lake. Well, thanks a lot. Bass are biting now, and I hear you rather fancy yourself a fisherman. Uh, I sure do, but I've got to get right back. There are quite a few cases, and then I've got my classes. Sorry, Doc. I'm sorry, too. Audrey will be very disappointed. She hoped to see you at the lake. Oh, but she's still in the hospital. Oh, no. Forster sent her home yesterday. That's why I went down there. Oh, Oh, he did, huh? Yes, he seemed to think she might have left before this. Well, that's, that's very interesting. What do you use for bait up at the lake, Doctor? <laughs> well, to tell you the truth... Dr. Bevan. Yes? I have Dr. Forster on the phone. Yeah, and you can have him. What did you say, sir? Uh, tell Dr. Forster you're very sorry, but I just left town. <laughs> you left town? Yeah, I've gone fishing. <laughs> That was the first half of Disputed Passage on the Lux Radio Theater. More after these words. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. This is Christopher Lee welcoming you back to Mystery Theatre. Let's return to the Lux Radio Theatre presentation of 
Disputed Passage For almost a week, John Bevan has lost himself in another world. A lazy world of freedom and quiet beauty and good fishing. As he walks with Dr. Cunningham back to the lodge, the conversation drifts around to the old doctor's other guest, Audrey Hilton. By the way, how did she get that bullet arm in the first place? Audrey hasn't told you? No. Her home was in the interior of China. When the Japs came through, well, I guess Audrey was lucky at that. She's alive. She's told you nothing of her background? You mean about China? Yeah. She's no more Chinese than my Aunt Minnie. Audrey thinks of herself as Chinese, and well, that makes her Chinese. She's an American. You've known her long? Well, since she was a child. Every year or so, I'd visit her home, her foster parents' home. They're all gone now, the old people and their children, massacred. Can't blame her for wanting to return. She wants to help. Return? Yeah. She didn't come to the States just for an operation. She's raising funds for China. Oh. Oh, I see. Well, here we are. Let me have those fish yours. My turn to clean But I've been away from this sort of thing so long, Audrey, it's hard for me to realize it exists beyond hardware store calendars. What exists? Oh, things like this. A lake in the moonlight. Great tall pines. Bass jumping. The works. John, that telegram. What did Dr. Forster want? Me? Well, I'll leave Sunday night. You know, I haven't thanked you for getting Dr. Cunningham to ask me here. I was surprised. I did not think you would come. You think I'm just a machine, don't you? <laughs> I think you may become one. If there is a wall around me. It's because I deliberately built it. You or Dr. Foster? He started it that first day when I came to his class. And later when I saw him work and I thought I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. So you decided to be just like him? I hated Foster as a person. In some ways I still do, but what he stands for, that's, that's different. Well, I swore that nothing would interfere ever with what he taught me to go after. That explains so much. <laughs> How do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, but I do. That's why we were drawn together. I do have a wall, but not of my own choosing. That is why we can be friends. Audrey. Yes? What you said just now about, about our being drawn together. I should not have said that. I'm glad you did. I, I want to ask you something. You may ask me anything. I, I want to kiss you. You, you wouldn't mind? No. <laughs> My technique, it's uh, pretty amateurish, isn't it? Audrey, what's wrong? Nothing. Well, of course there is. I acted like a kid. No. But you will soon forget because you are seeking to avoid life. I shall remember because I am lonely and seeking to enter into it. You think that by accepting the unworthy friendship of a miserable doctor, you, you might feel less lonely? I am sure of it. Provided the honorable friend of Lan Ying would not find her a nuisance. Lan Ying? My Chinese name. Sometimes I get so hungry to hear the sound of it. Lanya. Please. You will go back to your world and I to mine. But we shall be friends forever. Is it not so? I hope so, Audrey. What time is it? Ta time? Oh, it's a little after nine. Why? Because we must go back now. I am leaving tonight. What are you talking about? I am going to New York and to Washington. Oh, every now and then I think I understand you and then up comes something like this. Why didn't you tell me you were leaving? Please. 
I also have my work to do. In my little way, I do what I can for the Chinese people. Oh, I see. Let us walk back now. Yes, I'm sorry I'm late. I stopped in town to call Forster. Audrey, get off all right? Mm-hmm. Ma's gone to bed. Thought I'd have a last pipe out here on the porch. Sit down. Thanks. I'll be going back myself in the morning, Doctor. Not very flattering. The minute Audrey's gone, you Well, may... I can't say that I won't miss her. It's Forster, huh? Yes, I'm afraid I let him down running off here like I did. That's nonsense. You should have known Max when he was young. We lived together in Vienna. We had a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Fun? Yeah. Him? He was the happy-go-luckiest fellow you ever met until she died. Elsa. Elsa? They were engaged. He went completely to pieces when she died. Nothing but a bad appendix, but doctors didn't know then what they know today. She was dead two days. That's why Max came to America. Forster in love. I didn't think he could be so human. You don't suppose people are born that way, do you? Max has never changed. No, I'm afraid he never will. Never. Well, Brother Bevan, I hope you enjoyed your fishing trip. Very much, thanks. <laughs> I'm surprised that a great humanitarian like Cunningham would indulge in such a cruel pastime as fishing. Or does he draw the line at the sole of a pickerel? I don't know, sir. We were fishing for bass. Now that you've had your little outing, you might get around to reporting on that case at Centerville. Successful? Yes, except the man will never walk again. That was to be expected. I spoke to the superintendent about finding him a job in the hospital. Why? What business is that of yours? None. I just felt like doing it. You mean that Cunningham impressed upon your mushy mind the notion that social uplift is more important than surgery, hmm? As a matter of fact, we did talk about the case. Mm-hmm. Well, it may interest to know that we are to have his noble influence here, too. Yes, he's been asked to lecture for the next term. Oh, that's fine. Now, if you don't mind, I have a class of new pupils. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Feed them on the milk and water. Tell them what noble little knights they are. Yes, yes, soften them up for Cunningham. Tell them to be doers of good deeds and inferior doctors. You'll find my classes conducted as they should be. When they're not, you can always have me fired. Hello? Hello? Your call to Washington is ready, sir. Thanks. Hello, Audrey? What is it? There is something wrong? Oh, no, no, nothing, except uh, I, I want to see you. I've been trying to reach you all week, Audrey. Dr. Cunningham says you're leaving for China. Yes, John, soon. I have been thinking, and I must go. Well, uh, I've been thinking, too, Audrey, and I, I have to talk to you. You cannot come to Washington? Well, the hospital's pretty full. I don't know when I could, but... Oh, would you like me to come to you? I could stop off if that would be agreeable. Oh, nothing would be more agreeable. It will be several days yet. I will send you a telegram. Oh, that's wonderful, Audrey. I'll be waiting. I realize what an imposition this is, Abbott. Now, if you feel at all uncomfortable... Oh, please, Professor, uh, it is a great honor for you humble student to cook the dinner. Uh, well, what about the dinner? Is it going to be okay? Oh, the dinner will be excellent if the professor's nose will permit him to eat it. <laughs> Pretty smart, aren't you, Abbott? Oh, someday, perhaps. Not now. Uh, look, where did a Chinese like you get the name of Andrew Abbott? In your classes, the students are seated alphabetically, sir. The A's nearest the professor... The Chinese like to be close to the fountain of wisdom. Also, yes. being close, the tendency is to be called on first for answers. 
I have observed that if the first student answers incorrectly, the professor is not as furious as when the third person fails. That is why I am Andrew Abbott, sir. Now, if I may retire to your kitchen, sir, I suggest you welcome your guest. But you should not have served the Chinese dinner, John. You see, now I am homesick. You liked it? It was perfect. But you did not tell me you had a Chinese cook. One of my students, he volunteered to help me out. How is he called? Andrew Abbott. But if you hadn't liked his cooking, I was going to change his name to Sabisco. <laughs> Sabisco? <laughs> Just a private joke between Abbott and me. You surprised me too, Andrew. Did I? Mm -hmm. The clothes you're wearing. This is how I dressed in China. And since you are the person with whom I'm most comfortable, I wanted to dress in the clothes in which I am most myself. Thank you. Forgive me if I stare, but you're... You're beautiful. You don't know what it means to me to have you here. John, at dinner you started to tell me about Dr. Forster. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, well, it wasn't until Dr. Cunningham told me about Forster, about what happened to him after his fiancée died, I realized what a fool I'd been. There's really no conflict between science and life. It was Forster's bitterness that deceived me. He was just trying to alibi his own frustrations. Thanks to you, I, I see that now. I'm glad you feel more kindly toward the world. Well, I'm not thinking of the world. I'm thinking of us. You have been thinking of others, too. Dr. Cunningham wrote me what you did for that man in Centerville, the one who cannot walk. Audrey, don't you see? That's all you're doing. Six months ago, I wouldn't have bothered my head about that man. Oh, but you would if you had known. Yes, I had known you and been in love. No, no, do not say that. Oh, I must say it. I fought against it at the start, and then quite suddenly I, I knew that that was my salvation. I want you here always. I want to marry you. No, that cannot be, and you must realize that. Our lives are so completely foreign, completely different. Do you remember, John? I once told you I, too, had a wall that kept me from you. What is it? A promise, a solemn promise that is not yet fulfilled. If you'd only tell me, maybe I could... No, I cannot tell you. It is my own problem, and I have to work it out myself. In China? I thought so when I came here tonight. But perhaps not. I think I shall return again to Washington. But how long will it... I'm sorry, excuse me, please. Hello? Yes, this is Bevan. Yeah, I see. Blood count? Why did you wait? All right, get him in the surgery. I'll be right over. Yeah, see, dear, that's what your life would be. I've got to leave on the hospital. Will you wait for me? No, but I should like to stay here until it is time to go. Go back to Washington? Yes. But one promise I will give you. If I ever do come back here, it will be to stay. Goodbye, darling. For a little while. For a little while, yes. I do hope so. The ambassador will see you now, Miss Hilton. Thank you. Come in, please. It is good of you to see me, Excellency. I'm happy to express my gratitude for your great accomplishment. Excellency, it has been successful. Yes, the money China so desperately needs is being loaned to us. Your work is largely responsible. Sen Ling would have been very proud of his foster daughter. You make it very difficult for me to ask the question that has brought me here. I can help you? Yes, because it has to do with Sen Ling. It brings back the picture of how I lost for him and his family. After the Japanese went through, I found them in the doorway, what remained of them. 
As I stood there, I made a vow that so long as I had life, that life would be devoted to repaying the debt I owed to them. And now I come to ask you if that debt has been discharged. I must be sure that I have fulfilled my promise to him. Your debt is discharged many times over. Your promise is fulfilled. Thank you. I knew what was in your mind when you were announced as Miss Hilton instead of Lan Ying, and that is as it should be. You realize at last that you are an American. Yes, for the first time. And I hope he is a very nice young man. How did you know? What else could call you back to where you belong? <laughs> yes, he is a very nice young man. Hello, Max. Hmm? Oh, come in, Cunningham, come in. Seen Bevan today? This morning? You know, that boy is very fond of you. Bevan? Bevan is fond of no one. He doesn't know what emotion is. And besides, I... Suppose you leave Bevan alone. We're getting along very well. Actually, you're very fond of him, too. Yes, promise. Great promise. If nothing happens to hold him back. Nothing will hold him back. That's what I wanted to make sure of. It'll be a bitter blow if you turned against him. Me? What are you trying to say? He's going to be married. He what? Yes, he called me a little while ago. Wants us to have dinner with him tomorrow night. Audrey Hilton will be back from Washington in the morning. So that's it. That's it. I knew he'd been seeing the girl, but I had no idea... He'll be such a now, stupid... Just just a minute. I know, I know. You think it is wonderful. Of course I do. Yes, of course you do. What difference does it make if the world loses a potentially great scientist so long as he's happy? Evan needs at least five more years of training. What makes you think he won't get it? For a wife? <laughs> He'll be out grabbing for money. You're wrong, Max. He'll work harder than ever. A man doesn't always get a chance at real happiness. You of all people should know that. And you should not mind your own business. Now let me alone. Come in. Ah, it is good to see you, Dr. Foster. Forgive me for coming to your hotel, but I wanted to see you alone. I thought John would be with you. When I called from the station, he He was said... detained for a little while at the hospital. Miss Hilton, I came in a hope that I may be frank with you. If you will grant me the same privilege, Doctor. Yes. Yes, yes, agreed. I understand you plan to marry John Bevan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you realize, I suppose, that you are ruining a brilliant career, possibly one of the greatest. I know your theories, and so does John. We do not believe them. Oh, I wish you could trust me. I will not hurt him nor his career. You have already hurt him. But that is not true. How could I? In the only way that matters, his work. It has fallen off miserably since you first came here. There is no reason there for that. There is every reason, Miss Hilton. No man can concentrate when his mind is beset with doubts, anxieties. Doubts? But he has no doubts Think, now. Miss Hilton. It is a man who chose a path for himself because he saw it would lead to a, to a definite goal. Now, if you were in his position and you abandoned that path, wouldn't you be worried, fearful that you had done the wrong thing? Yes, that I can understand. I came here not to influence you, but to make certain things clear which perhaps you have not understood. The decision must be yours. Mine no, yours, and his. Yours only. He had made two promises, one to himself and the other to you. And he will break the first before he breaks the second, for he thinks then he hurts only himself. But you and I, realizing what he could make if of himself... If you don't mind, doctor, I think you have told me enough. You are an intelligent woman, Miss Hilton. I beg you to think it over. Good day. Get hold of yourself, John. She said she'd be here and she will. Why did she check into that hotel and an hour later check out? Because she's probably coming here to your place. Oh, I should have met that train. The Forster gave me such a stack of work that I... That's probably Audrey now. 
John Bevan? Yes? Telegram, sir. Oh, thanks. Bad news? We must follow our separate paths. You to your goal. I to mine. Goodbye. It's... It's signed... Lanyang. We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From the Lux Radio Theater, after this. If you enjoy classic radio shows like The Lone Ranger, Sam Spade, Burns and Allen, Have Gun, Will Travel, Gangbusters, and Sherlock Holmes, become a member of the Classic Radio Club. Each month, you'll receive 10 half-hour classic radio shows along with historical liner notes. The 10 shows will be on five CDs or via digital download, whichever you prefer. You'll also receive an email every week with a digital link to the full five-hour Hollywood 360 radio show and the 30-minute Radio Rarities podcast that Carl Amari and I co host. In total, you'll receive 34 classic radio shows per month. Become a Classic Radio Club member at ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535 to speak to a live operator. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535. That's 815-900-7535. Now back to the Lux Radio Theater. Three weeks have passed since Audrey Hilton's disappearance. Defeated and hurt, John Bevan has plunged into his work with even greater intensity than ever before. But his efforts show only an increasing mediocrity. To notice it is Dr. Max Forster. You sent for me? Bevan, what in thunder's the matter with you? All right, what is it you want? I want you to get hold of yourself. Moping around like a sick calf. I'm getting fed up, Bevan. Tell me what you want, and I'll do it. But I don't have to listen to any of you. Oh, you don't? Having straight, plain facts is a little too strong for you, is it? And I thought you had backbone while I was wrong. Well, but that's impossible. You couldn't make a mistake. I made one in you, and I admit it. The cold-blooded Dr. Bevan, the true scientist. Look at yourself. Sniveling pub. Afraid to face life. My heaven, that girl had more stuff in her. Girl? What girl? What girl? What girl do you suppose? Look at me. Did you talk to Audrey? Take your hands off me. Tell me why you got a chance. Did you get her to go away? Yes. Yes, I talked to her. And she saw how stupid the whole thing was. Oh, you swine, you cold-blooded little hypocrite. You talk about backbone. Do you think you're fooling me? You'd been married now if you'd had the chance, but she died, didn't she? Bevan. Just because you couldn't be happy, you don't want to see anyone else happy. That's why you sit on your little tin throne and try to play God. I did what was best for you. You were throwing away your life. That's a lie. With her, I'll do everything I ever wanted to be, including a better man than you, because I'll know something you'll never know. 
I'll know what's inside of people besides blood and bones and nerves. I'll know the thing inside them that really matters. Come back here. I'm not through with you. Well, that's too bad, Dr. Forster, because I'm through with you. I've been your stooge, done your work, taken your abuse, but now I'm free. And I'm clearing out. Now, where do you think you're going? To find her. Save yourself the trouble, Brother Bevan. The Hilton girl has gone back to China. All right, then I'll go to China. I don't want to sound discouraging, Doctor, but I'm afraid you'll be wasting your time. I came to China to find her, and I'm not giving it up now. These are war times. All communication with the interior is destroyed. And if you should reach Shentin, Miss Hilton may be a thousand miles away. I've traced her this far. Can you give me what papers I need? I'll get them. Doctor, the Chinese have an ammunition depot at Shentin. That means constant bombing from the Japs. It's very risky. She went through, didn't she? Very well. I'd arrange for your horses and guide. You can plan to leave tomorrow. Before the bombers came, Doctor, this was the village we called Shentin. Slaughterhouse. It's like a nightmare. Perhaps we'd do better not to stop. You've got to rest the horses, tell your men. Wait, this place. Hey, what is it? I do not know. I... Monsieur! Yes? You will pardon my amazement, monsieur, but I, I did not expect to see a white man. Uh, can I get food for these horses? And for yourself, monsieur. The hospital here is at your disposal. Hospital? Where's the doctor? Uh, permit me, such as I am. My name is Lafayette. Your arm? Uh, the air raid. But I was fortunate, only a fracture. Well, if you'd care to have me look at it, I'm also a doctor. Uh, a doctor? Oh, come in, monsieur. I beg you to come in. I have 40 wounded inside. And you, you attempt to handle all these patients yourself? Well, there's little choice. But I have two good nurses, Chinese. Thank you for looking at the old woman. She'll be all right in a few days. Uh, monsieur, uh, there's a child, a little girl. I'm sorry. I, I haven't time. I, I have to push on. Yes, yes, I understand. I regret I cannot help you, but I have not heard of the girl you seek. Maybe if I come back this way, I can stay longer. Yes, yes, of course. That's the use. A few minutes more won't matter. Show me the child. Uh, this one, monsieur. Her leg. We have not had time. And uh, this, this arm of mine... Here, let me see. It's broken. Yes, monsieur. In four places, at best I can tell. Uh, I have no more x-ray. Tell my guys to unsaddle the horses. I'll stay. Ether, doctor, hurry, will you? The boy was hemorrhaging. You can take off your gown, doctor. What do you mean? The boy died an hour ago. Oh. Come inside. You must lie down. You have not stopped for 15 hours. Come, in, in here. Those poor, helpless people. If I could only make them understand. Oh, but you do. Your tone reassures them as much as words could. Uh, monsieur, I am much interested in your technique. In all my experience, I have seen but one other man who uses instruments as you do. Oh? Yes, at the Sorbonne in Paris. I, I once studied there. The Great Forester. A few weeks ago, I was the assistant of the Great Forester. Monsieur, you are joking. No. Nobody jokes about Forester. Listen. Planes? Yes, Doctor. Planes and bombs. Well, they wouldn't bomb here again. I'm afraid they will. They are trying to destroy an ammunition dump. They missed it yesterday. We've got to remove our patient, Doctor. There is a bomb shelter in the rear. Hurry, please. Ah! 
This is Dr. Foster. What is it? Cablegram for you, Doctor. Cablegram. From China, Guangxi Province. Read it. Read it. John Bevan, wounded air raid. Shrapnel embedded in brain. Hold no hope. It is signed, Basil Leferrier, Mission Hospital, Shandine. I think, uh... Thank you, thank you. Nurse. Nurse! Yes, Doctor. Find out where Shantini is in China and the quickest way I can get there. I must get immediate reservations. Don't stand there. Hurry! Incredible you got here at all, Dr. Forster. But you cannot expect to do the impossible, even under the best conditions. No one is dying, but he's still alive. We must do what must be done. Operate here? Yes, of course. Well, there's a Chinese doctor with him now, Dr. Chong. Uh, he can help you more than I, my, my arm. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But you'll stand by. I may need you for transfusion. Now get your surgery ready. Um, I forget. Yes. The girl, uh, Miss Hilton, did they even find her? No. In his delirium before the coma, he asked for her so many times. Uh, we are trying to locate her. You know where she is? Mm, only rumors. A village a hundred miles up the river. There is talk of a white girl who drives an, an ambulance. A white girl with a Chinese name. Send for her. We have already. Perhaps she is the one he's. We're sought. wasting time. Now start anesthetic. I'll be right in. What's the evening, Doctor? A respiration 12. Where's Lafayette? Yes. Look. The course of the shrapnel. You see, it has penetrated the frontal lobe. We shall find it about the fissure of Orlando. There is nothing we can do. Nothing? Why, well, we can remove the pressure. Ah. The, the patients inside, they are praying for Let him. them pray. It will take their minds off of themselves. Light, light. Where is more light here? If you were Bevan Doctor, would you want prayers or my skill? I, I would rather not answer that. Where are retractors? Retractors! Retractors! Hurry, Doctor. You must hurry. Now stop your stupid talk. My forehead. Wipe my forehead! The pulse becomes weaker, Doctor. Transfusion. Alfredo. We are prepared. Fighty, fighty. Le bonwa. Thirty minutes more. Perhaps less. Less? Yes, he may die. Pulse? Respirations? The pulse is stronger, Doctor. Respiration 18. Sponges, nurse. Bandages? The operation is finished. You should have started to rally hours ago. The pressure was lifted. There is still hope, Doctor. He holds his own. I tell you, I cannot understand it. You must not harass yourself. You operated under tremendous difficulties. In your own surgery... No, no, no. That's got nothing to do with it. The operation itself would not have been more successful no matter where it was performed. Whatever, whatever these two hands can do, they have done. But there he lies and I'm helpless. Yes. All that science can do has been done. Nothing can help Dr. Bevan now except himself. Himself, himself. And what does that mean? What can Bevan do? He's never come out of the coma. There comes a time when we are all helpless, we men of medicine. When nothing can help except something inside the patient, the, the, the will to live. If there were but some way to, to strike a spark within him. Save it. your breath, please. I have no time to listen to talk of mystic powers. Oh, no, 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 no. I speak of nothing strange, monsieur. I speak only of his soul. Doctor, do you hear the planes again? Planes? Planes? We can't move him. Get in matters quick. Furniture. 
Anything, anything that might protect him. Wait, wait. It comes from the west. The Japanese never come from the west. Chong, look. It is a Chinese plane. It is landing. A woman gets out. A woman. What woman? She's coming to us, gentlemen. It is... It is Audrey Hilton. But he wakened during the night. He knew me then. I'm sure he knew me. Perhaps, Miss Hilton. Perhaps I hope so. Where's the white? He lies there as if you... John. John, I am here. I am here to stay. Please don't leave me now. Please. Miss Hilton, Can't I... you hear me, darling? Please, come back to me. It is only a little way back. His eyes. He's opening his eyes. John. They close again. Still the coma. Yes. Miss Hilton, there's really nothing you can do. You should get some rest. I will stay. He may wake. He may wake. Oh, I, I must have dozed off. How is he? He has not moved. This, uh, this blanket. Yeah, the John was cold. She put it about you. Audrey, you? Audrey. Audrey. Look, he roused his doctor. Stand aside. Audrey. Audrey, don't go. No, my dear. I will stay always. God. God in his infinite mercy. Foster. Yes. Is that you? Yes, John. Don't. Don't try to talk. Don't. Try. Water. Water. No, it is too soon. Not yet. Tired. So tired. Want to sleep. Sleep, my darling. The sun will be here when you wake. The sun and I. The sun and you. Doctor. All I could do, I did. It was not enough. What are you saying? Look at him. The shock, the shock. It was too much for any human. But he's breathing. It is regular. Sometimes I think that I... I fell here. He's sleeping in his face. The color returns. He... He will recover. Thank God. Oh, thank God. Audrey. Come here. You saved his life. No. Not I. Nor science. It was something, something beyond us. Audrey, I don't know if you can forgive me, either of you. But what I did to you both, I thought it was for the best. I wanted him to be as great, as great as I knew he could be. Please, please try to believe that. I believe. I thought I had given him the greatest strength any man could know. Science. But I have seen something... Something even greater. Surely there is a God in the heavens where I have seen. Yes, I have seen his miracle. Good night. Good night. I hope we meet again. That's Alan Ladd and Anne Richards on the Lux Radio Theatre in Disputed Passage, 
from March the 5th, 1945. In a moment, Adventures by Morse. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. For the past ten weeks, we've presented this ten-part Adventures by Morse story, City of the Dead. Here's the concluding chapter with Where the Pearls Are Hidden. Adventures by Morse Carlton E. Morse presents The City of the Dead, featuring Captain Friday. If you like high adventure, come with me. If you like the stealth of intrigue, come with me. If you like blood and thunder, come with me. Two o'clock on the afternoon of the third day in the City of the Dead. A drenching wet blanket of fog still lays upon this old abandoned cemetery. In our last episode, Jimmy Parker and Dr. Tuner had gone down into the City of the Dead in search of the phantom church bell, leaving Phyllis Carroll alone with Mayor Friday. Jimmy tried to prevent this arrangement, but was unsuccessful, and so at the last minute he slipped Phyllis the knife with which she had been stabbed two days previously and a police whistle. If in danger, she was to blow the whistle. Jimmy and Doc then went down to the old church ruins and accidentally discovered the bell in the basement of the ruins. But that wasn't all we found. There was a man down there. He was bound and gagged and near death from a blow on the head and from starvation. He was the one who had been ringing the bell. Dr. Tuner and I unbound the now unconscious fellow and started back to the cottage with him. And halfway there, suddenly out of the murk and gloom came the piercing squeal of a police whistle. I knew that meant Phyllis was in danger. I dropped the unconscious man and ran through the fog for the cottage, leaving Doc Tuner to follow with a stranger as best he could. I'm coming! I'm coming, Phil! Oh, I was a fool to leave her with Mayor Friday. There's the house. Phil! Phil, I'm coming! I'm coming! Phyllis! Phyllis, what's the matter? Jimmy, you're so white. What's the matter with you? Well, isn't anything wrong? You blew the whistle. Oh, I know I didn't, Jimmy. You mean that police whistle, Parker? Captain Friday. Well, where did you come from? He's back, Jimmy. Nothing happened to him at all. Never mind that now. Were you talking about the police whistle? Yes. There's one of my men outside. I've got a whole crew down from the city hunting for that phantom church bell. Well, you don't need him. Dr. Tuner and I found it. What? You found it? You say you found the phantom church bell? Where? Yeah, Mayor Friday. Found it in the basement of the old church. Basement? Basement? Well, now, ain't that the beatenest... Why didn't I think of that right off? But who in Sam here would think of looking in a basement for a ringing bell? Oh, but look here, Parker. What made the bell ring? Well, there was a man that... Say, we've got to go help Dr. Tuner. He's got a dying man down there in the City of the Dead. I left him alone when I heard the whistle. A man? Who is it? I never saw him before. Neither had the doctor. You say he's dying? Well, that's what Dr. Tuner said. Well, come on, Parker. I want to see that man. Uh, well, listen. Here he comes now. Captain Friday, now very tonky. Never mind that you... now, Doc. What'd you do with the man? I reckon you won't need him any longer. Of course I do. I want to question him. Can't question him, Captain. He died back yonder while I was fetching him up. Died? Without saying a word? Unconscious for a few seconds. Gave his name, told me who he was, and how come he was tied up, and then he died. Oh, the poor fellow. Well, who was he? 
Said his name was William Rogers. Said he was an employee of Cartwright, Hobson, and Cartwright, the attorneys who sent Miss Carroll here her letter about the black where the black pearls were hidden. There. That's the key to the whole story. That's what I've been looking for. Doc, did he say what he was doing down here in the City of the Dead? Said he was looking for the black pearl. Why, the dirty double-crossing son of a thief, he got what was coming to him. Them was his own last words, Captain. Said he deserved what he got. Did he say how he got information about the pearls? Yes, he said that two days before the letter was sent to Miss Carroll, it was taken out of the company vault and put in a special file. He had access to this file and made a practice of stealing information that he could sell. What a fine piece of jailbait he was. Cartwright will be tickled pink to hear about this. Well, that just about gives me a line on this whole affair. You mean you can explain everything now? Yes, Miss Carroll. It's a deuce of a mess, but I got it straight, I think. And and you don't think Jimmy or I killed my cousin, Bert Arnold? No, wait. Let's go back to the beginning of the whole thing. Here, sit down, Parker. You too, Doctor. It's a long and intricate story, and it's going to take a while telling you. Sit here on the bed beside me, Jimmy. Oh, you mind putting another log on the fire first, Parker? Oh, sure thing. So you got the whole thing straightened out, Captain. Yeah, huh? but with you and Dad acting like a couple of clams, I mighty near slipped up. Eh, oh, you think you got the thing straightened out now, huh, son? I certainly have, Dad. No fooling. Oh, are you all set, Parker? Yeah, go ahead. Comfortable, Phil? Oh, yes, Jimmy. Well, as I said, to get the thing straight, we'll have to start way back at the beginning. You mean the night we caught these two youngsters sneaking out of the City of the Dead? The night somebody shot at the mayor? No much further back than that, Doc. We'll have to go way back to the San Francisco fire in 1906. Oh. Yes, Miss Carroll. Back to the time when your grandfather, Theodore Beverly, and your uncle Robert Beverly lost everything in the blaze. Robert Beverly? You mean my uncle who disappeared? That's right. Is he mixed up in this too? <laughs> oh, rather. Well, this is the way things happen. On the night the fire got such a hold on San Francisco that it was apparent most of the business and residential district was going to burn... Old Theodore Beverly and his son Robert took that precious collection of pearls, drove down here to the City of the Dead, and buried them in one of the graves. Their clue to the place where the pearls were buried was the name on the tombstone. The name was Ernest Morton. Well, that explains all the activity in the vicinity of Ernie Morton's grave. Yes. Now then, after the fire had been subdued in San Francisco and everything was put more or less to rights, old man Beverly and Robert came down here to recover their hidden treasure. It wasn't there. What? Nope, not there. Oh, but, but I don't understand. What about the letter he left with the Cartwright lawyers for me? Well, the old man lost a good deal of his reason in the fire. He saw his business burn up before his eyes. He saw his great fortune vanish overnight. He saw his beautiful home burn, everything go. His mind went with it. So even before they returned for the pearls, Theodore Beverly was a broken man. Well, then he might have forgotten where he hid the pearls. Yeah, but Robert should have remembered. That's true, and yet Robert wasn't all that he might have been. I'll have to say a little about him to explain. He was an unhealthy young man. had always been pampered, not too brilliant. In every way, a minus quantity. Uh, almost subnormal, wouldn't you say, Dr. Tuner? No, I wouldn't say that. Just a fellow who'd never have to lift a hand to help himself. Absolutely at sea when thrown on his own. Well, there he is. Certainly he was thrown on his own after his father's fortune disappeared. And he was twice as helpless when his father lost his reason. Well, then the pearls may still be buried somewhere down here in the city of the dead? <laughs> You're getting ahead of the story, Miss Carroll. Well, it was sometime during this period that old man Beverly made out those elaborate papers giving the pearls to you. He was obsessed with the idea that the pearls were buried in Ernie Morton's grave. That's the excuse for the papers. You see, Cartwright didn't know what the letter contained. They just filed it away to give to you on your 20th birthday as ordered. Oh, 
Now then, Doc Tuner didn't quite tell the truth when he said all his patients were buried in the city of the dead. Hmm, told all it was necessary. Uh, perhaps for general knowledge, yes, Doc. But as a matter of fact, he had one patient left. It was Theodore Beverly. Oh, my grandfather. You were his doctor. One of my best friends before he lost his mind, Miss Carroll. Now then, for the next three or four years after the fire, Theodore Beverly and Robert used to make trips down here to the City of the Dead to dig around for the pearls. It wasn't only the old man who was becoming obsessed with the idea that the pearls were still in the cemetery. Robert grew more and more peculiar. At first, the mayor here, who knew them both well, too, tried to curb them, but it was useless. Yeah, we'd have had to lock them up. Yes. It soon became apparent that either they'd have to be allowed the run of the cemetery or else they'd have to be locked up in an asylum. Oh. Doc and Dad here talked it over quite a long time. To put them away would have meant a tremendous scandal. So finally, after much thought, Dad built a little cabin back there in the woods and moved both of them in. Say, look here, Captain Friday. You're not going to tell us one of them was masquerading as Lammy Fink. Exactly what I'm saying. Robert Beverly and Lammy Fink are one and the same person. Yeah, but if you knew... I didn't know it, Parker, until I got on this case. I grew up as a kid down here thinking that Lammy Fink was no one else but Lammy Fink, an adult-pated gravedigger, and that the old man who lived with him was his crazy father, old Fink. So Mother's suspicions were right. Grandfather wasn't drowned. No, not drowned. They just faded out of the world they'd always lived in and became mere shadows in the city of the dead. Their obsession concerning the pearls took a peculiar form. They set up a sort of guardianship over the city of the dead. They watched everyone who approached the cemetery like hawks. Everyone who came down here, they believed, were here to dig for their pearls. Yeah, it never hurt no one. Just watched them until they left. That's right. Well, it got so they didn't do much digging themselves. The old man would grow uneasy about once a month and go out and dig like fury for a few hours. Dad here got so he could tell when a spell was coming on. After old man Beverly had worn himself out and had left, Dad would go down and fill up the hole and replace the turf. So that's how all those graves have been refilled so mysteriously. Remember, Captain, I told you the place where Phil and I had dug had been covered up, and the grave was refilled after we er opened Ernie Morton's grave and found Bert Arnold. Yes, Dad was responsible for all that. Well, now, that brings us down to the night that the phantom bell started ringing, and old Clawfoot put in his appearance, and you, Miss Carroll, and Parker here were captured. Yes. Well, who was old Clawfoot, Captain Friday? Ah, just a minute. At least two days before you and Parker came to the City of the Dead... Dad here discovered that the cemetery was receiving night marauders other than Robert or old man Beverly. He called Dr. Tuner down the second day, and things just about reached some sort of a mysterious climax when you two kids walked onto the scene. Dad and Doc naturally thought they'd finally caught the guilty parties, and they locked you up. They didn't call the police because they feared giving away the Beverly secret, which they dreaded doing after all these years. So they just locked us up. That's it. But they were curious about this phantom bell. They went down to the old church and found that new rope hanging from the ceiling. As you know, Dad pulled the rope, thinking it would ring the bell, and he was creased by a bullet. Yes. Well, who did that? That was a booby trap. That rope wasn't fastened to a bell. It was fastened to the trigger of a revolver on the opposite side of the room. A thread, fastened to the rope, ran across the ceiling and down the opposite wall to the gun, which was pointed directly at the rope. Anyone pulling the rope would be in a direct line with the bullet. But who would rig up a trap like that? That's what took me the longest to figure out. You see, it wasn't the sort of thing a person of old Clawfoot's type would do. This was underworld stuff. Somebody was trying to bump somebody off. I began to check up on Bert Arnold's recent friends, discovered that he'd hired three men to work with him on some kind of a hidden treasure hunt. He didn't know it, but they were some of the Morelli mob. 
bad boys to tangle with. The moment he mentioned half a million in buried treasure, they were with him all the way. Well, the police in San Francisco have picked up two of these fellows. That's where I got this information. Bert Arnold wasn't bad, Captain Friday. I know he wasn't. I know that. He just picked the wrong man to work with him. Well, but where did Bert find out about the pearls? Well, that's where this chap from Cartwright's office comes in. The phantom bell ringer. He opened your letter. Got the information about the pearls, sealed up the letters again, and then took his information to Bert Arnold. Then that's the man we found bound and gagged in the old church? That's it. He sold his information to young Arnold for $1,000, but he evidently didn't know what square shooting was. As soon as he got the 1000 he organized his own searching party and came down here to hunt for the pearls himself. Hmm. Seems funny he gave Bert the information. Yeah, it does seem funny, Doc. On the other hand, his game was to give out stolen information. Probably the idea of hunting for the pearls himself was an afterthought. Anyway... Bert and his three friends came down to the City of the Dead, and right after them came, what was his name, Rogers and his men. Neither party could locate Ernie Morton's grave the first night. Eventually, they clashed, and Bert Arnold and his men caught this Rogers fellow, but his men got away. They tied him up in the basement of the church, intending to leave him there until they found the pearls. Mm, real gang stuff. And that's not the half of it. Here, throw another stick of wood on the fire, and we'll get to the second night. That's when murder really came to the city of the dead. Slowly the skein of intrigue and desperate action is beginning to unwind. When Jimmy and Phyllis came down to dig in the grave of Ernie Morton, they sent into motion a train of events which shook the whole graveyard. Death was breathing down their very necks. But wait. The second night, Bert's gang had no better luck in looking for the Morton grave. But the third night brought you two kids down here. You went directly to the grave. How did you find it? Well, there's a map in the City of the Dead with all the plots named on it and the recorder's office in the city hall up in San Francisco. We found it on that before we came down. You don't say. Well, you're not so dumb. Oh, and now to get back to the gun trap in the church. Bert's men were using the church for a hangout in the daytime, doing their searching at night. One evening, while Bert and his men were out, Roger's men slipped into the back room and rigged up the booby trap for revenge, hoping that one of the other gang would be shot. Evidently, however, Doc Tuner and Dad were the first to run across it. Yeah, just my kind of luck. What a horrible, cowardly thing to do. Well, now to get back to the night you came down. You went to Ernie Morton's grave and began to dig. It wasn't any time until Bert and his men heard you and crept up to see who it was. Bert recognized you in the moonlight, Miss Carroll, and kept his men back. You see, Jimmy, I knew I, I knew someone was watching. Yeah. But they weren't the only ones watching. Really? Who else? There were two other groups. Two? Yes. There were the men of Roger's gang... And back watching you and the Rogers gang were old man Beverly and Robert. <laughs> well, now, if that wasn't a setup. Finally, Miss Carroll, you became frightened, and you made Parker quit digging before he'd really had a chance to get deep enough to find anything. I couldn't stand it any longer. The minute you two left, Bert and his men sneaked up, saw that it was Ernie Morton's grave you were digging in, and took up the work where you two left off. You see, they saw that you hadn't found the pearls. Oh, I, I'm glad we didn't find them now. Just think what might have happened. Well, the Rogers gang waited until you were out of hearing, and then they jumped Bert and his men, and in the fight, Bert was strangled and his men driven off. Oh. Then they, in turn, took up the job of digging. Then the Rogers gang got the pearls after all? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. After they dug to their satisfaction, they threw Bert's body in the grave and partly covered it up. Later, Dad came along and saw the half-opened grave, and thinking that old man Beverly had been up to his tricks again, filled it in, not knowing that he was helping to cover up a murder. But what about the sobbing we heard on the road? 
And who stole Jimmy's car? The car was stolen by Bert's three friends. They wanted to make a quick getaway after Bert was killed. You thought there were only two, but the third one got into the car further down the road. And what about the person we heard sobbing? That was Robert, or Lammy Fink, whichever you wish to call him. But where was old man Beverly? In Lammy's arms. In his arms? Yes. The old man's terror at seeing a man murdered was so great that it killed him. Lammy, or Robert, grabbed his father's body up in his arms and fled sobbing through the tombstones and down the road. That's who you two youngsters hurt. Yeah, but look here, Captain. I thought you told me it was Lammy Fink who was scared to death. Well, I thought it was at first. You see, I hadn't seen either Lammy or his father for ten years or more. Besides, I only had a few moments to examine the three bodies down in the cellar of Lammy's cabin before the place was set on fire. Light was bad, and added to that, Lammy and the old man always did look a great deal alike. Yeah, but Dr. Tuner and the mayor should have recognized the old man. Well, they would have, except that they had even less time to look over the bodies than I had. I thought Lammy's face looked awfully old, but the captain said it was Lammy, and I never thought to check up. The light was so bad, I didn't even get a good look at his face. So my grandfather has just died. It, it seems so strange. I, I can't realize it. You see, I've thought of him as dead for more than ten years. But that means Lammy Fink isn't dead. Yes, Parker. That means Lammy Fink isn't dead. Well, where is he then? In custody. You mean Lammy Fink is in jail? Robert Beverly, alias Lammy Fink, is under observation. But we'll get to that presently. The next question in line is who burned Lammy's cabin? Yeah, I'd like to know about that myself. Well, it was one of Bert's gang, Dad. They made their getaway in Parker's car, but they'd left so many clues behind them that it was necessary for them to return and sort of clean up. I got this from one of the men we caught. According to him, they returned the next night after Bert was killed and saw us dig up Bert's body. We left him at the grave while I went after a stretcher, and you, Dad, and Doc here, dashed off after old Clawfoot. Parker was still out from that clip I gave him on the jaw. They sneaked in and got the body. Parker woke up just in time to see someone carrying the body away in the fog. But why'd they bother about the body? Because they knew that as long as we didn't know who was murdered, we wouldn't be able to get a line on their gang. That, likewise, was the reason for the burning of the cabin. Now... The next incident was the murder of the stranger who tried to saw his way into Parker's room. The man we saw Clawfoot murder? Yes, that was another member of Bert's gang. Remember, I was clipped on the head and his body also stolen for the same reason that Bert's was stolen. To hide the identity of those still remaining alive. Yeah, but how did the bodies get in the cellar of Lammy's cabin? Well, according to the men we have in custody, they put the bodies in the cabin thinking it was a deserted shack. Lammy must have come along and lugged them down into the basement and arranged them alongside the body of old man Beverly. Lammy, by this time, was completely out of his head. Say, Captain Friday, just when did you capture Lammy Fink? <laughs> later, later. Oh. But why did Clawfoot kill him? To protect you and Miss Carroll. To protect... Say, who is Clawfoot anyway? Oh, Jimmy, don't you know by this time? It was Lammy Fink, of course. Yes, Lammy Fink. Or, if you prefer, your Uncle Robert, Miss Carroll. Oh, well, then he must have known me. Yes, he knew you all right. That was why he patrolled about the house. That's why he brought you the Black Pearl. The Black Pearl? Uh, Clawfoot or Lammy Fink brought me that? Yeah, the night he broke into the cottage. He put it under your pillow when you fainted. He threw the knife through the window that stabbed you, too, Miss Carroll. He did? Well, but why, if he was protecting me? Well, he didn't mean to hit you. That was an accident. By the way, where is that knife? What? Well, but tell me, Captain Friday, why did he throw it? Well, where's the knife? I'll show you. Well, I... <laughs> Give it to him, Phyllis. Well, I... Well, I'll... Well, what's it doing there in bed with you? I gave it to her for protection when I had to leave her. Oh, you did, did you? Thought I was going to murder her, I suppose. Oh, I'm sorry, Mayor Friday. Honest, I am. I shouldn't have suspected you, but 
Well, I had to do everything I could to protect Phil. Uh, I think I understand, boy. Forget it. Well, look here at the knife. See here how the handle screws off the blade? Oh, what's inside? There. The black pearl. Not the black pearl, Miss Carroll. A black pearl. But I don't understand. Well, it's simple. Old man Beverly kept two of the pearls out of the collection for some unaccountable reason. And the old man died, Lammy fell heir to them, and he was trying to give them to you. He was highly unsuccessful both times he tried. The first time he almost stabbed you to death, the second time he nearly frightened you into fits. Say, I reckon while we're on the subject of that visit, I want to know how the mayor here got out of that bedroom when he was locked in. <laughs> oh, that? Yeah, that. Well, the mayor had slipped out of the house hours before. I didn't know where he was or what he was up to, but I didn't want the rest of you to know he was out and increase your suspicion. So I pretended he was asleep, and I locked the door. Well, I'll be dead, Burns. So it was you, Mayor, who was digging in Ernie Morton's grave at the end of the trail of bones. No, Parker, Dad wasn't digging in the grave. He was just filling up the grave that Robert Beverly, alias Lammy Fink, alias Clawfoot, had opened. He was getting battier and battier. The opening of the cottage door and dropping that skeleton inside was one instance. The scattering of his bones through the city of the dead was another. And finally, he gathered them up again in a sack and left them on the porch. But I want to know what became of you, Captain Friday, while I was lying behind that tombstone. <laughs> well, you have got an explanation coming. Mm. I saw it was Dad in the grave. I didn't want you to see him. So I made you lie flat, and then I sneaked out and took him away. After you'd gone back to the cottage, Dad finished filling up the grave and then returned to the cottage. So that's how it was. Uh, 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 and about that gold pencil you had, Mayor... Go ahead and explain it, son. Well, when I caught Dad in the grave, I had him in a tight place. So I made him sit down and write out the whole story, most of the story I've told you. He'd been trying to cover up for the Beverlys, but I made him give me the lowdown then and there. Mm. Anyway, he borrowed my gold pencil and then stuck it in his pocket. That's how that happened. <laughs> I hear you tried to lie out of it got caught, Dad. Yeah. Doesn't pay to lie if you aren't good at it. Now then. But who jerked the mare in my bedroom and robbed him of the other black pearl? Right here, just a minute. Yeah, here it is. Here's your other black pearl. Then it was you in there. Yes, I needed that pearl. But I didn't choke Dad to get it, and I didn't take it away from him. He gave it to me. Well, I had to tell some story. You didn't want him to know the truth. That's right. You see, folks, I wasn't getting anywhere working in the open, so I decided to disappear and keep my eyes on things from cover. Didn't take long to get to the bottom of things that way. Was it you that kidnapped Clawfoot out in front? Yes. Did you see that? Well, partly. It was still so dark we couldn't see who it was. It was I. Say... What made him make those horrible noises? Why didn't he talk? I rushed into the city and an examination was made. His throat became paralyzed, evidently, the night he saw Bert Arnold murdered. It was a condition paralleling his mental state. All he could do was wail. Oh. Well, but why did he wear that funny robe, then? And what about his claw feet? Oh, yes, his claw feet. Haven't you ever seen these Indian moccasins made out of the footskins of animals with the claws left in to make them ornamental? <laughs> By gum, of course. Oh, then his feet weren't clawed at all. No. Lammy had a pair of those moccasins. He lost all of his clothes. When the cabin was burned, he didn't even have a coat. It was awfully cool. Dad had some sheets out on the line airing, and Lammy stole one of them to wrap himself in. Oh, the poor thing was just trying to keep warm. That's all. He wasn't the least bit interested in being ghostly. Well, isn't that the limit? Mm, about explains everything, too, I guess. Oh, well, there'll be points coming up from now on, but that covers the most important phases of the case. Yeah, but look here. You haven't even touched on the most important thing of all. Yeah? Yes. What's become of Theodore Beverly's collection of black pearls? Oh, the black pearls. <laughs> well, my dear Parker, the pearls are waiting for Miss Carroll up in a strong box in the Civic Center National Bank, where they have been ever since the fire of 1906. What's that? You mean to say those pearls never were buried down here in the City of the Dead? Yes, they were. 
When the fire started, the pearls were buried here. But after it had been checked, old man Beverly came down here alone, dug them up, and deposited them in the bank. Right after that, he lost his memory. He remembered burying them originally in the city of the dead, but he forgot all about coming back here for them and putting them in the bank. Hmm, you don't say. Criminy, how did you find that out? Well, at dawn this morning, I rushed Lammy to the city, and the whole story came out in the first editions of the paper about me having two of the collection of the Beverly Pearls and all that. Well, the bank saw the story and called me. They had the rest of the pearls. They had an order to deliver the pearls to Miss Carroll on her 20th birthday. They did? Well, why didn't they do it then? Because the old man had made a mistake of a month in her age. The bank would have automatically delivered the pearls to you, Miss Carroll, next month. You mean to say that... that I'm worth a half a million dollars? Exactly that. Oh, golly. Well, Jimmy, now you've just got to marry me. Hey. Yes, you do. A girl with that much money needs protection. Well... If you insist. Oh, darling. And you're all invited to the wedding. Yeah, and we'll be there. Don't you think we won't? And you, Captain Friday? Well, I don't know. I've got some business that's going to take me out of town if I get back. Well, what kind of business, son? Military intelligence, Dan. The government's put a finger on Skip Turner and me to do a job for them up off the coast of Canada. Who's Skip Turner? One of my operatives in my agency. Off the coast of Canada? Hmm. That sounds like smugglers. Well, I can't talk about it, but I can guarantee you there's liable to be plenty of death and destruction before we get through. There's some pretty lonely, wide-open spaces up in that country. And not all the animals go around on four legs. That's Elliot Lewis on Adventures by Morse in City of the Dead, where the pearls are hidden, from March 11th, 1944. Next week, at this same time, we'll begin the three-part Adventures by Morse story, A Coffin for the Lady, so don't miss it. In a moment, I'll tell you what's coming up on the next Mystery Theater. Be sure to join me next time on Mystery Theater when we'll hear Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Dimension X, and Dragnet. This is your host, Christopher Lee, saying thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Mystery Theater with your host, Christopher Lee. The producers of Mystery Theater wish to thank this station and Radio Spirits for helping make this series possible. This copyrighted radio series is written by Dennis Etchison, Jim McCants speaking. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.